This particularly chilling yet puzzling event begins on an evening like any other in Royce City, Texas. Norma and Dennis Woodruff sit down together for dinner. Tragically, it would be their last. This would be the case that would divide a family for the rest of their lives. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we discuss and dissect the most mysterious, terrifying, and mind-bending cases from all over the world. Before we begin, we would like to send our sincere condolences to the loved ones of Dennis and Norma Woodruff, who became victims of this horrific event. On this channel, we investigate chilling, mysterious, and often thought-provoking crimes that have shaken communities to their very cores. There is no blueprint for a potential killer, and in the words of author Agatha Christie, everyone is a potential murderer. In everyone, there arises from time to time the wish to kill, though not the will to kill. The sun sets on an autumn evening in Royce City, Rockwell County, Texas, a small city with a population of approximately 14,000 people and is just 15 square miles in size. To most, the small city is nothing more than a convenient rest stop for a break while driving down the long rural country roads. On October 16, 2005, Dennis Woodruff, 43 years old, and his wife Norma, 42 years old, were having a very ordinary evening. They had dinner with their son and were preparing to go to bed, ready for work in the next morning. The couple had recently moved from Heath in Rockwall County, just outside of Dallas, and had become popular members of the local community in a very short space of time. Family and friends praised them for their generous and kind-hearted natures, and also remarked on how proud they were that their children had both begun studying at the university. They were proud parents of two children, Sharla and Brandon. Their daughter, Sharla, was away studying criminal justice at the university in Magnolia, Arkansas. Their son, Brandon, was going out to a nightclub after dinner in Dallas, meeting up with friends at the Abilene Christian University where he was studying. Sharla was seen as the more outgoing of the two siblings, much more confident. She even had founded her own organization at the university, which escorted young women who didn't feel safe back to their dormitories although she was described by friends as a complex character. Brandon was described as a naive cowboy and an animal lover. He was younger and hadn't quite come out of his shell yet, but he was still well-liked. Brandon was going through his adolescence, having recently realized he was gay and saw university as an opportunity to spread his wings. Both Brandon and Sharla said they had a good relationship with their parents, but the events of the next few days would put those claims to the ultimate test. From the outside, the Woodruffs seemed like a perfectly normal American family getting on with their lives. But on October 16, 2005, that would all change. Things appeared normal outside their mobile home, but inside things could not be more different. The couple lived in a mobile home surrounded by two acres of land. Although it was a mobile home, it was relatively spacious. On the same night, Sharla was trying to contact her parents from Arkansas without success. Knowing this was abnormal, she contacted family members in the area to see if they could go by and check on them. No family member was able to make contact, and the police department was called. The following day, the police department conducted a welfare check, but on arrival could see no immediate signs that anything was out of the ordinary and decided not to force entry into the property. 
Sharla continued to worry about her parents' well-being and contacted her aunt, who subsequently contacted longtime family friend Todd Williams on the 18th of October, 2005. Williams went to the address to check on his friends, eventually breaking into the residence. What he saw sent shockwaves through him and the community. He immediately called emergency services. First responders on the scene saw a devastating sight. Dennis and Norma Woodruff sitting beside each other on the couch as they had done many evenings before, but this time was different. The scene was described as looking like something out of a horror movie. The couple, their couch, and everything else was covered in blood. Dennis Woodruff was sitting upright in a t-shirt and a pair of sweatpants, his head tilted backward, his eyes still open and staring at the ceiling. His head was covered in dried blood with a pool of fresh blood between his legs that had been running down his t-shirt onto the couch. He had one gunshot wound to the mouth and nine separate stab wounds to the face, neck, and shoulder. Police also noted that he had two unusual stab wounds on the back of his neck. Norma was found sitting to the right of Dennis, slouched on the sofa. Her body shape was described as looking like she had been trying to crawl underneath Dennis to avoid the horrific attack that was about to be unleashed upon her. She had four gunshot wounds to the head, neck, and one that had entered through the back of her right hand. She had also been stabbed just to the right of her sternum above the left breast. The devastating attack the couple had been subjected to and the position of the bodies had also left a larger stain of blood between the bodies. A cardboard box was on the floor in front of them, masquerading as a coffee table. One responder noted there was a trail of blood leading towards the bathroom where they presumed the killer had gone to wash him or herself up before leaving the property. Interestingly, the blood trail did not actually lead to the bathroom, stopping just short of it. The bodies were taken to the Dallas County Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences early the next morning. The autopsy revealed that Norma had died from the stab wound on her chest and a total of five gunshot wounds. Dennis had been stabbed no fewer than nine times in the face and neck and chest before receiving the final gunshot to the face. Other than the blood trail leading to, but not inside the bathroom, lead investigator Ranger Sergeant Jeffrey Collins had little evidence to work with, and it made his progress slow. But police were convinced, even at this early stage, that the motive must have been robbery. They had no idea who may have visited the couple in the last few days. They had no witnesses, and given the couple were well-known and apparently popular, no immediate suspects either. All they knew for certain was that a well-liked couple, with seemingly no enemies, had been murdered in their home. Sergeant Jeffrey Collins told his detectives to video the crime scene without disturbing it, standard practice for any investigation. Unfortunately, by the time they got around to this, it was 9 o'clock in the evening, and the video footage would be largely in the dark with no lights turned on, something that Sergeant Collins, with the benefit of hindsight, may have done differently if he had the chance again. Officers did their best to video the scene in the dark. This, of course, was difficult. The detectives worked until 3 in the morning, cataloging everything they found on the property, and then they called it a night, agreeing to meet up again the next morning. The police began to doubt their original theory that the motive was purely robbery. There hadn't been any signs of struggle at the scene, and the only valuables that had gone missing were the couple's wallets. So, with so little to go on, the police did what they could to put together a list of suspects. This would include family, friends, and anyone else who knew the couple well enough. But unfortunately for the police, the initial investigation led to no leads. 
As is often the case with this type of crime, police had to focus on the last person who had seen the couple alive, their son, Brandon. After leaving the autopsy, Ranger Gibson received a call from dispatch. An anonymous lady had called saying she had information on the Woodruff murders. It was a strange statement for the caller to make given that the police department hadn't yet made any public statement on what had happened. Family members confirmed that they hadn't even been told at this point. Detective Gibson told dispatch to give the lady his cell phone number so that she could contact him directly. Soon after, he received a call from the lady who was still refusing to give her name and used star 67 to withhold her number. The lady said she worked for the United States Treasury Department and may have some useful information for them. Eventually, Ranger Gibson managed to get her name. It was Norma Etherington. She wanted to know if the police had any suspects yet. Detective Gibson informed her that the investigation was in its infancy and that there weren't any suspects quite yet. Etherington explained that she knew the Woodruff family because of her son, Mike, had been best friends with Brandon Woodruff until the senior year of high school, and that Brandon had changed in that year. He had apparently become distant from his friends and started dressing differently, and she had heard rumors that he was living a double life. By double life, Norma Etherington was referring to rumors that Brandon Woodruff was a homosexual. The bigger question, of course, is how did Norma Etherington know Norma and Dennis Woodruff had been found murdered? Her praise for Dennis and Norma was unwavering. She said they were very nice people and that Norma Woodruff had been on the board of governors at the school with her. Ranger Gibson, however, did not take the call too seriously and told Norma Etherington that the investigation would continue and that the police may need to contact her at uh, a later date. The police department, of course, questioned the son, Brandon, who they said seemed distraught with shock and grief. He also had an alibi for the evening of the murders, having told police that after sharing a pizza with his parents, he left for the university to meet his friends. Police believed Brandon, as there was no evidence connecting him with any wrongdoing, and he openly admitted that he was the last person to see his parents alive. Strangely, though, he told police that he didn't believe his parents' death was an accident, even before the police had released any of the details concerning the cause of death. Brandon also said he was in possession of his father's credit card. The suspicions of the police were aroused, not only because of the credit card, but they couldn't account for all of Brandon's whereabouts that evening, despite him giving them a relatively detailed statement. As they do with everyone, they chased down the alibi that Brandon Woodruff had presented them and found an anomaly. They interviewed Robert Martinez, one of the friends that Brandon said he had gone to pick up before returning to the university. Martinez confirmed that he had indeed made plans with Brandon and confirmed that Brandon had arrived to meet him as agreed, just not on their agreed time. Martinez said that he had spoken to Brandon on his cell phone when he didn't arrive on time, and he sounded significantly out of breath. He also noted that when his friend finally arrived, he was not wearing a shirt or shoes. Another piece of interesting information that came to light from an unexpected source, a lady called Michelle Lee contacted the police department to report that a gun and ammunition that had belonged to her had gone missing from her home. Who is Michelle Lee? She is the mother of Brandon Woodruff's girlfriend at the time. She told law enforcement that Brandon Woodruff had been at her home over the weekend before the killing of Norma and Dennis Woodruff. Given the holes in Brandon's account, the addition of being contradicted by his friends, and now the missing gun, 
police were convinced of Brandon's involvement. Six days after the bodies of his parents were discovered, he was arrested and charged with capital murder. The only evidence against Brandon Woodruff up until 2008 was circumstantial. Brandon had been late to meet his friends. A neighbor called Randall Lunds said that he had seen him around the mobile home on the evening of the 16th of October, but couldn't give a definite time. He simply stated that it was probably between 10 and 11 in the evening and thought nothing of it. He wasn't a very reliable witness, though. He even struggled to remember the names of Norma and Dennis Woodruff, despite telling police that he knew them so well the couple had asked him to keep an eye on their home when they weren't around. This may all sound compelling, but any attorney worth their paycheck should be able to bat this away with ease, given the lack of forensics. However, in 2008, new evidence came to light that the police department believed was significant. Norma Woodruff's sister was sorting through some possession at Dennis and Norma's previous residence in Heath, and they came across a decorative dagger which had a skull on the end of the handle. She presented this to the police department who had it tested for DNA. The test proved that there were traces of Dennis Woodruff's blood on the knife. A former college roommate of Brandon's testified that the same dagger was kept by him in their dorm room. However, without Brandon's DNA or fingerprints, nobody could be 100% sure if the dagger had been used by Brandon Woodruff to murder his father. Brandon's defense for the blood on the knife was that his father had cut himself on it some time ago. The firearm belonging to Michelle Lee was never found. Indeed, no firearm was ever found that was connected to these murders. Police did, however, recover some ammunition from Michelle Lee and stated that it was probably the type used on Mr. and Mrs. Woodruff. The defense put forward by Brandon's attorney was that he was being persecuted by a strictly conservative community for being homosexual. They argued that eight out of the 12 potential jurors on the case had specifically stated that homosexuality was immoral, and this led to a bias when considering their verdict. The police department denied any bias ever took place and said, we don't care if he's gay. Perhaps the most compelling argument brought forth by the defense was that of timing. The prosecution's case gave Brandon a window of approximately 14 to 20 minutes to commit the murders, clean himself up, and then go to meet his friends. The defense asked how a slim teenager could overpower and kill two fully grown adults at that time, then thoroughly clean himself and the mobile home, given that no DNA evidence was found connecting Brandon Woodruff to the scene. The arguments, however, didn't hold water with the jury. The prosecution argued that Brandon had killed his parents to keep his homosexuality a secret and to get his hands on their life insurance. This would then leave him free to live his life openly as a gay man. Despite the claim of homophobia and the timescale argued strongly by the defense, Brandon was convicted of capital murder in 2009 and was sentenced to life without parole. He has now served slightly over 13 years in jail and maintains his innocence to this day. But that isn't quite the end of the story. Since the trial and the sentencing, the family of Brandon Woodruff has been split. His sister, Sharla, is adamant that he committed the crime, while his grandmother, Bonnie, has stood by her grandson funding his appeals. She told the media that she knows her grandson was wrongfully convicted, believing that he's not capable of murder and that he's being made a scapegoat for somebody else's crime.
Bonnie and the campaigners for the release of Brandon have disputed the claims made by Charlotte, not the least of which is because during her first police interview, she claimed to have had no idea who could have committed the crime. She said that it could have been drug dealers from down the street or anyone who knew her parents. She described her sibling as a typical sibling rival who didn't have a bad bone in his body. In her second interview, she, however, was certain that it was her brother. What made her so sure? What changed in the three days between the interviews? We simply don't know, and the police didn't ask. Charlotte Woodruff keeps her whereabouts secret these days and doesn't want to be anywhere near the public eye. She did speak in one interview, describing her life as a constant battle to get up in the morning since losing her parents. An organization called the Innocence Project took up Brandon's case in 2021. They described themselves as a nonprofit organization set up in 2006 to provide free investigative and legal services to the citizens of Texas who have been convicted of a crime they did not commit. They are demanding that new evidence be heard. Allison Clayton is their deputy director who is leading the support for Brandon. Ms. Clayton believes that the attitudes towards homosexuals at the time firmly contributed to his guilty verdict, citing the 8 out of 12 jurors who thought homosexuality was immoral. The organization doesn't believe that Brandon had enough time to commit the crime. But, most startling of all, they are insinuating that a piece of evidence has been suppressed by the authorities. A clump of long blonde hairs apparently were found in the lifeless hand of Norma Woodruff. They say this evidence was never tested by authorities, and now they can't find it. They believe that Norma ripped this hair from her attacker in a desperate yet brave last stand to try to save herself. Even to this day, the hair has not been found by the Innocence Organization or the police department, although the battle continues to locate it. The right to appeal directly to state authorities was refused to Brandon in 2009. He, therefore, has to go and prove his innocence to the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals if he has any hope of being released. There are compelling arguments and testimonies on both sides of this complex case, but we at Beyond Evil will always keep in the forefront of our minds the two innocent people, aged just 42 and 43 respectively, were killed in cold blood in an evil, horrific attack. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and leave a five-star review to show your support. Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadows.